0: There are a lot of efforts around um, disinformation and misinformation, and we have to cut through that noise together, the work that you find passionate about, but, but it's now is the time to, to engage and engage fully because I don't think we get another shot.
1: Thank you all so much for joining me today. My guest today is Alexis Miguel Johnson, the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Action Fund, which provides a vital health services to 2.4 million people every year through its more than 600 health centers across the country. Alexis has been in both organizations' leadership for more than a decade. She's a former board chair and a board member. She's also a renowned social and racial justice leader, a lifelong political and cultural organizer, and a tireless advocate for reproductive rights and access to quality, affordable health care. She's the co-founder and former co-director of the Perception Institute on Race, Gender, and Ethnic and Other Identities that really reduces bias and discrimination and promotes belonging. And she currently serves on the board of Color for Change, Revolutions Per Minute, and Narrative Initiative. She's the founder of The Culture Group, as well as a frequent commentator on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and in the press. During the 2004 election cycle, she served as an executive director of Citizen Change, and she holds degrees from Princeton and Yale and has taught political science at both Yale and Wesleyan universities. On today's episode, Alexis and I talk about what is really driving this movement and how do we actually create space for others to lead. We go into depth about what this moment in politics means for all of us, particularly for healthcare quality and rights and what we need to be doing to make those seen as basic fundamental rights, especially when it comes to women's reproductive healthcare. I'm so excited you're joining us today for this conversation with Alexis. It is so necessary and she is so incredible. This is At The Table with Dr. Elam Murabid. Now for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN High-Level Commissioner on Health, Employment and Economic Growth. One of 17 Global UN Sustainable Development Goal Advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries. And I've met people who have completely changed the game from names that we know, To names that we don't There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else so at the table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries it's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today now it's been called at the table because i think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces and this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know what does being at the table mean to you and who are you bringing with you? So how are you feeling today? If I I had to ask you kind of to give me two words on how you're feeling. I
0: am feeling terrified and hopeful at the same time. I'm trying to hold the the, the terror that is motivating me during the last few weeks of, of uh, this election cycle, uh, and the hope of what what we can see on the other side.
1: Okay, because that's a, th- those tend to be two emotions that that very rarely go together. Or when they do, you know, it's kind of a big deal. There's something that that really has you internally um, mobilized. So you are currently the CEO and president of Plant Parenthood, um, the the Action Fund, which provides vital health services to 2.4 million people. And you are somebody who has championed for as long as I've known you, have heard of you, has championed inclusive representation but also inclusive access. So what to you are the most pressing issues, you know, when you think about 2020 and everything that's come up. Um, what do you, What based on your own history, your own life, what stands out to you is something we all need to be talking about.
0: You know, I think what what's remarkable about 2020 is the intersection of all of these issues uh, coming together, right? And at Planned Parenthood, we, we look through the lens of our patients, like when we actually center the experience of our patients, it gives us a Uh, a different perspective on the set, the suite of things that are impacting their lives at any given moment. So they may come to us for sexual and reproductive health care, for STIs, for, you know, not for STIs, for uh, STI prevention or treatment, for, they may come to us for access to abortion. They may come to us for gender affirming care. Uh, and then they may leave and be worried that ICE is going to show up on their job or worried that they may be pulled over by a police officer on their way um, home or to work. They may be worried about their children, you know, who will have those experiences uh, with state violence. And so, you know, one of the things that Planned Parenthood Action Fund in particular um, has been focused in, in a worry sense is, is this thread of we are under assault on our, in our own healthcare system. COVID has laid bare, just the mm-hmm. systemic racism inside of, uh, you know, uh, this horrible pandemic. We are in the midst of a full-on racial reckoning that it's been building for centuries um, and and certainly exploded in the last uh, few months. And, um, you know, and sexual reproductive health care is fully under assault. We have, you know, last year in 2019, there were some odd 300 um, restrictive bans against abortion in 47 states across the country that were introduced. And now, you know, we are uh, with the loss of Justice Ginsburg, uh, looking at the Senate rushing through a nomination of someone who is, you know, a clear vocal, uh, it's been vocal and is a clear threat to, to reproductive rights. And so that, um, the combination of all of those things, I think, which is part of the terror that I'm talking about, um, is really uh, the level of, 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 of trauma that I think we're all enduring right now.
1: So so then where is the hope coming from?
0: So the hope is is coming from um, and we know this just kind of in our like our organizing world, right? That we I've never seen a stronger outside organized game that's almost more powerful than than the the inside elected game. And that it's it, it has to do a lot with how we are building at the intersections. And that in moments like these, sometimes we come together just really in coalition, right, we come because we've got to get a candidate through, we've got to get a policy through, we've got to, you know, um, deal with a ballot initiative, or, you know, something very concrete. And we come together, and then we do the thing, and then we dissipate. And so, and we take some lessons, we figure out who we want to work with again, and, you know, and we go back, and we, you know, and then we push our own agendas. I think because the everything feels existential right now, everything, I mean, including the climate, right, everything, thing is so existential right now that it's forcing organizations like ours to 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 organize differently with Movement for Black Lives, with um, you know our immigration rights partners, with our um, racial justice partners in ways that where I do feel like we're building an infrastructure at the intersection, and that to me feels more sustainable and and really kind of long term hopeful, and that's what I think is exciting.
1: Okay, yeah, I think you've given you've given me some hope because after the recent um, presidential debate, I definitely was not feeling that. So I'm glad to hear that, that there is kind of this long-term institutional building of infrastructure to be able to support us uh, in the years to come. So how did you get started in all of this? Like, how did you get involved with Planned Parenthood? How did you, I mean, take us through the journey of where you decided, okay, I'm going to dedicate my life to ensuring that all people have access to care. Um, and in particular, to ensuring that those most underrepresented have access to care.
0: So, I, I mean, I think for all my life, my work has really been at the, at the uh, center around social justice issues, around racial justice largely. Um, and I, you know, had a career organizing um young people to vote back in the day with our all of our uh, kind of artists who were engaged at the time our our, uh, hip-hop artists who were engaged at the time I had a career starting an institute around racial bias and how our brains process race and gender and other identity differences and um, there was a moment like kind of when I was at the uh, in the middle of both of those careers, and I was walking down the street in New York City, and I saw this billboard in Soho, which is a wealthy shopping neighborhood. And I looked up, and it was this cute little black girl's face. She must have been about five, and I just like looked at her and I just smiled. I was like, "Oh my god, what is she selling? I have to run out and buy that because like that she is just so cute." And I got closer to the billboard, and the words underneath it said the most dangerous place for an African-American is in the womb. And I was so just taken aback that these um, these racist and gendered attacks on black women and our control of our own bodies and decision-making and our own morality um, had come to my doorstep in SoHo. And I just couldn't stop talking about it. And I was just, I was like, This is insane that, um, you know, this is like in in the, the late 2000s. And I met, I had actually known Cecile Richards, who was the former president in, through political circles. And I saw her at a dinner party and I cornered her and I was like, do you know what's happening out there? Do you know what's happening across the world? I just, you have to do something about this. This is your job right now. And you have to do something about this. And she kind of just like took a step back and she smiled and then she looked at me and she said, no actually, you need to do something about this. (laughs) And um, she recruited me to the board. And it was there that I really found my own passion around, um, uh, around sexual and reproductive rights. I was not someone who had been active in engendered um, rights, um, most of, uh, quite honestly, most of my race work was around um, Black men and boys, and um, you know, uh, kind of prison industrial complex and dealing police departments and and um, educational systems. And it was just this kind of opening for me to really step in and connect the dots between all of the political work I had been doing to all of the um, the bias work that I had been doing around race and gender. And it just um, it just took off from there.
1: So. Uh, I appreciate so much you giving us that look back, but I have, you know, the the history and the work that you have, the depth of experience that you have in that racial bias work, um, and 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 you kind of referencing that it was predominantly focused around men and boys and and the you know racist systems and institutions that operate um, in their lives and and impact their lives. But has that impacted the way that you look at Planned Parenthood and the way that you look at? Um, reproductive and sexual rights towards women, like how have those two really kind of, um, how has that one experience really informed the other?
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly impacts the the work, and I think as a you know Planned Parenthood is a 104 year old organization, right? And um, it has had its own uh, racial reckoning over over the last decade for sure around our um, around not just our founder, but other ways in which um, the organization has shown up um, over the decades. Uh, and it's a conversation that I uh, fully brought into my experience as a board leader. I was a board leader for almost a decade before I, uh, before I stepped down off the board and into this position um, as interim last year. And the work of really understanding how bias and racial anxiety in particular impact that patient provider relationship, impact the ways in which our, um, you know our patients are seen and the kinds of information our patients would be willing to share because they don't want to conform to stereotypes, and how that impacts their care, I think, is the most centering piece of the work and how it shows up. Just from a from a practical standpoint, um, I think internally inside of the organization and how Planned Parenthood functions inside of the movement is also one right where it is. You know, it is is it's traditionally been much more heavily aligned with the uh, with a white feminist um, reproductive rights frame around the work. And we have an incredible—you um, know—we sit in an ecosystem with very strong, um, uh, extraordinary uh, women of color, largely Black women, queer women-led organizations that have founded um, under a reproductive justice banner that have really pushed and held us accountable. And so, really understanding how bias is operated and how um, system, you know—and systemic racism is operated. And how we sit in that I think is the kind of interrogation work that is really important to me. It's the kind of lens that I've been bringing into this job.
1: So You've mentioned the kind of the internal reckoning that Planned Parenthood has and how it's been more traditionally aligned to the white feminist movement. And this is something that across the board, um, you know, this past year, kind of the developmental space as a whole has really had to have conversations about how it centers white feminism um, and how oftentimes brown and, and, and black labor is exploited even within this movement. That, you know, having that history, Um, And and walking into that at a time of particular challenge for the organization and being a black woman yourself, how have you, you know, have you had to, you know, kind of balance the reality of the institution with what you want to see out of it? Or have you decided like, no, we're going to, we are going to do better. We're going to start today. You know, we're going to kind of lead on this. What's really been your approach as you've kind of been maneuvering the political and social realities and the history?
0: Yeah, I mean, I honestly think my um, coming into the permanent role has given me both a sense of, um, it, it's given me an ability to operate with the urgency, you know, kind of literally like an emergency preparedness way of of dealing with this work because it is so, so overdue. Uh, and it's also um, given me, quite frankly, a sense of freedom. I, I don't know that I will ever feel as free in a job as I do in this one. And it is because I've had you know, a decade to really learn and understand the organization, the Federation, build relationships internally and externally. I've had that same decade. I was building uh, a practice and an expertise and insight through social psychology um, and neuroscience around what it really means to do this work. Um, and then, you know, obviously a lifelong, you know, background in political organizing, right, which is also part of this work, building consensus internally, institutionally, and, and um, extra institutionally. And the thing that, um, the thing that has actually been most interesting for me personally is that I've done each of those things with a strong ability to compartmentalize my own identity inside of it, right, that when I walk into you know, a corporation and I'm helping guide Starbucks through their racial bias training. I can do that because I can like separate myself. I can tell the executives what they need to understand. And then, you know, and I, I separate it from the, probably the biased experience I had in Starbucks or some other place, um, you know, the week before because I'm in service to it. And to be in a place where I now have to let it all, I have to personally have to sit in the discomfort of what it means when I can't get the organization to go where, you know, to make the the immediate leaps that I need to, and I'm still looking at like my brown face is on this, right? Like how do I, and the expectation of my leadership is on this, how do I wrestle with that and sit in that discomfort? And it is one of those, I, I didn't realize how much compartmentalization had been part of my own personal um, uh you know, strategy really for, for navigating, you know, bias that I experienced. And so now that I'm, I'm forced to sit in the discomfort in a way, um, that I'm asking institutionally for us to sit in it. Um, it's been, um, it's been amazing. I mean, amazingly interesting and and painful and emotional and exciting all at the same time, I guess I'm living with
1: all of these emotions. Yeah, no, it, it, I, it's it's incredibly complex. And I, I remember, so the first time we met, you had been giving a racial bias training. Um, and I remember me and a couple of the other uh, women of color in the audience came up to you after, and we said, we loved it. It's an incredible training, but I felt like you were talking to the white people in the room. Like, it didn't feel like it was about centering brown experiences or black experiences. And you responded to me, and I will forever remember this, you said, of course, because the audience was predominantly white people in the room. And they need to understand that racism isn't just about our experience. Racism is about the way that they change and then the way they, they take accountability and the way they take responsibility. And yes, we can talk about our experiences, but we need to give tools. And so you've kind of, you've built this career really on bringing a very Strategic lens to how we can shift social and and, and cultural uh, and historical norms. Do you feel? Do you feel in this moment in American history, at least, and in global history, that that there is legitimate change? Do you feel like you know these companies like Starbucks, et cetera, that you've done these trainings for? Do you think that there is intentionality and commitment behind it? Or do you think you know what this is the issue of the month, and we're going to talk about you know we'll put up the black square on Instagram, we'll talk about Black Lives Matter, but we're not going to hire black people, we're not going to institutionalize black leadership. Where do you kind of come down on that line?
0: Yeah, no, it's great, and I totally remember that moment um, uh, after the the presentation and then and the training, and I think that what I what I also remembered if I didn't communicate and and what I've always felt in doing those kinds of um, those uh, workshops is that that I feel grounded looking into the brown faces right because I know you you know you see the work that is being done and it's not asking you to do it right and and, and I think that is also kind of a you know um, something that we oftentimes have to grapple with as as um, you know women of color in in predominantly white spaces you know trainings are not silver bullets just like implicit bias, understanding implicit bias itself is not a silver bullet. It is a way to make meaning of how our brains, how we can actually hold strong conscious values uh, about equality and equity and, you know, striking down our privilege and power and all those sorts of things, and yet not actually do it in real time because of all of the conflicts between our own, you know, behavior and and unconsciously what our brain is telling us we need to, to be doing. Um, so bias trains are, are not a silver bullet. And I think that, um, that what we have to move for, they they're for me, they're entry points into the conversation to kind of account for um, the difference between the conscious vo- values that we have and how we reconcile them with the, the the behaviors that that ladder up and actually impact people's lives, careers, health. Um, um, but I think the real the real work and I think what has shifted is the thinking around accountability and how we actually move to stronger accountability measures. And so that a lot of this work uh, has been built on, you know, the goodwill of people because it's the right thing to do or just sheer willpower. Like I'm just going to stop being biased or I'm just going to, now that I know it, I've got the app. I'm good. Uh, Not realizing that we fall into our default, particularly the the more tired we are. I mean, in the moment like this, we're in like pandemic, we're Zoom schooling. We've got five months old, five months old on the floor. Like all of the ways in which, you know, our our brains and our bodies are being tested makes it so much harder for us to do this work. So it really is important for us to think about what are the structures, what are the practices, what are the policies. How do we institutionalize that? And that. That has given me hope and I think it kind of goes back to the to the outside game, right The outside game, the the you know we we are seeing like the youngest, the wokest, the most inclusive, the brownest, the queerest generation driving change right now and they are fully up on the kinds of, um, you know, what feels like accountability for them, what is creating equity for them, and they're communicating it back in in ways that are, you know, forcing leadership to take notice. And so that is going to be the change that transforms, you know, organizations mm-hmm. like a Planned Parenthood, you know, companies like, uh, you know, Starbucks or elsewhere, you know, and I think that's that's what I see driving, that we're driving towards.
1: So how does that shape out in healthcare? Because we know that healthcare has a significant amount of implicit bias, but we know that it's also a very, you know, it's it's a institution. It's it's very much set in its ways, um, and and oftentimes it is something like you know, okay, we're going to do a training for medical students or for residents. Um, so how do we actually build systems? to to really address the bias in healthcare. And if you can give, you know, everyone uh, you know, here a little bit of a little bit of background on what that bias looks like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that the the hope that I have for healthcare is 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 actually that it is driven by protocols, right? It's driven by checklists, uh, and so when you are seeing a patient, you have a set of things that you are looking for to determine whether or not in the same thing, the same way you you uh, doctor Google your symptoms, right? They're able to kind of put them into a box, and you know, with obviously much better uh, medical training, to, to you know, to to determine what your um, you know what is ailing you. And so I think that the, the protocol piece is, is incredibly important. So the way bias might, um, show up and I actually think what's interesting about healthcare is, is it's a good place to look at the interaction between implicit bias, racial anxiety, and also patient stereotype threat and how all of those things interact on, on outcomes. So implicit bias is just, you know, your body's like quick, um, your, your brain's really, um, Quick stereotyping about based on on uh, race or gender or age or or another identity um, that you know certain kind of um, traits and characteristics that you might align with uh, a race or gender and um, and then how it correlates with you know whatever symptoms that you are seeing so in um, you know in sexual and reproductive health care. Um, a a physician may have a you know bias around a young teen of color um, who comes in and needs an STI screening, and you know, and they may project um, you know hypersexuality onto that onto that patient, and um, and that may be you know that that's maybe where it starts. Um, the racial anxiety between the provider and the patient means that, um, you know, the doctor may be wary of asking the question in the right, you know, in a way that will elicit the right information because they don't want to be perceived as, as biased or racist. And it may mean that the patient may not want to, you know, may feel uncomfortable. The interaction may be short, uh, shorter than normal. And um, and so you're already set up with, you know, you've made a quick assumption. Now you're not asking the questions to help you get the right information. And then patient stereotype threat, which is, you know, we know that the stereotypes that people hold about us in our groups, and uh, we don't want to conform to what people may think about us. And so if we do get asked the explicit question about, you know, let's say our sexual history, uh, we may not want to give up things that may feed into some notion that we may be promiscuous. And so all of the ways in which um, those things can impact the interaction, the confidence, the trust in the relationship with the provider, as well as the diagnosis and the outcome, and quite frankly, the patient compliance, whether or not they're actually going to comply with what you said because, or discount it, because they just want to say that the doctor is is biased and they don't really understand me. Those are the failures that we see embedded in the healthcare system over and over again. And and the mistrust is real. I mean, look, you know, uh, the discussion, the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment was not a, a figment of our imagination. You know, people who are losing their her, their uh, uteruses in detention centers. You know, like that's happening now. And so, the the idea that um, that that bias not just explicit bias um in the case of the the detention centers, but actually the implicit ways in which um, you know, all of these things show up in our healthcare system. Like those are the kinds of things that are so critical to address.
1: No, I couldn't agree with you more. And I wonder from your perspective now, kind of at the helm of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, in the middle of an election cycle, um you know, in the middle of a Supreme Court justice um, confirmation that that um, is not someone who has been very outspoken about um, women's choice, uh, reproductive choice. What do you think is the most like what what are you saying Okay, to your team? This is the most urgent thing we're organizing around. This is this is our central message. And what are you saying to people who have misconceptions or ideas about Planned Parenthood at this particular time?
0: Well, look. I think the the thing that is is most on the line right now in this election, as well as in the Supreme Court fight, is access to health care. And uh, reproductive health care is health care. But we also could lose uh, the Affordable Care Act. We also could lose insurance for almost thirty million, um, you know, folks across the country. And in the time of a pandemic, when we we are now two hundred and five, two hundred and six thousand dead inside of the United States alone um, in a crisis that could have been managed so much better um, because, you know, obviously we had uh, incredibly incompetent leadership, that this healthcare crisis is the thing that is um, that is the biggest driver for most of the people that we talk to. We also talk about access to sexual reproductive health care, right? I mean, that is also on the line. We have 17 cases that are literally a case away from the the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, with this uh, potential confirmation, with the rushing this nomination through, you know, it would impact um, the the clearly the decision making for someone who has been very actively, vocal on um on 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 her views on access to um uh to abortion well, why and we're does also matter, know,
1: sorry alexis i just have to ask you this question because i get asked this so often by um by colleagues and friends why why should this matter to people who don't who don't support um abortion why should this matter to people who don't care right? People, people often say like, yeah, I'm not really, it's not an issue I care about a lot, or they feel very strongly in, in the other direction. So what do you say to, to people who are saying this is actually potentially a positive or something that isn't even on their radar?
0: So what I would say is that actually the majority of Americans actually do support Roe as law well, land, right? 77% of, um, of folks believe that uh, abortion should be you know, a decision made by the person seeking the abortion, their partner, their medical provider, their pastor, whoever, and it shouldn't be in the domain of uh, government interference. There is literally no state in the union that believes um, that doesn't have a majority support. So what it says to me is not that people disagree with that, it is that uh, we've seen a decade of power building in the states, in particular in state legislatures, where we have a vocal minority that controls the levers of power, and they have pushed, you know, restrictive ban after restrictive ban
1: against the will of the people even in their own state. So and why that- haven't we been able to do that? Like, why hasn't, why ha- why has it been so imbalanced? Why hasn't there been kind of that organization and that, that, that kind of legislative power? Why hasn't that been on the other side as well? Because we, because we engage in
0: redistricting every 10 years <laughs> and we are now in 2020. And we see how power has been built and how the the rules have been changed consistently over the last decade to actually um, uh, support this process. And we have been, I mean, like to, to, you know, in all fairness, we have been really a lot more focused at the federal level and and focusing on the Senate and the White House through all of these. Um, through this last decade, and there has been a lot more power building in the states. But it starts from that basis. If you have a foundation where you you can you can literally create your own ma- majority through gerrymandering, it helps you build that power and aggregate that power over time. And the irony is that the courts were our stopgap, right? So as these bans were happening, we were relying on the courts, and you know, and as part of our, um, you know, um, you know, three branches of government to help us. You know navigate this and now that that you know in just the last three years the federal judiciary has been remade under senator mcconnell right he is he and the trump administration have pushed through 200 young judges that are incredibly conservative on access to sexual and reproductive health care some of them don't even believe in ivf right so like you know i mean we're talking extremes not even just like you know we, we want to put abortion aside
1: do you think um, progressives women's rights uh, champions uh, advocates activists do you think that we dropped just a and this is a, a more of a personal thing that I've been wrestling with do you think we dropped the ball on the on on really kind of the power of of the judiciary? do you think we dropped the ball on so here let me ask this question this way because this is something I've been thinking about a lot the Republic And I don't know if this will go into the interview, but this is just a question I have for you because you're just a brilliant um, person who I think can help make sense of it. The Republican party has over the past five decades been very deliberate in centralizing power to to the detriment oftentimes of public opinion, um, but they haven't really cared about public opinion that doesn't necessarily lead to their increased power. Uh, other than their base, it, they find it irrelevant. They've been very good at black and white messaging. And and um, I, I work a lot in counter extremism. And one of the biggest things we've learned there is um, that the most powerful thing you can do is give people a very clear mandate. No gray area, mm-hmm. be very black and white. People know exactly what their mission is. They know exactly how to engage. And the Republicans have been very good at that. It's very black and white. Do you feel as though, you know, liberals, progressives, Democrats, whatever, you know, you want to call it. Do you feel as though we've been, we've been wearing kind of the kid gloves? We've been, we've, we've been leaving too much gray area. We've been trying to get everybody under the tent. We've, do you feel like we haven't been strategic and clear in our messaging? Or or is this just something that we got outmaneuvered in without... Look, I I think that the
0: threat um, has not felt as existential as it as it has right now. And I do think there's something about uh, a Supreme Court seat looming that could that will be the difference um, on the the court on this issue. I do think it is the um, the extreme, you know, again, rapid rushing through of federal judges over the last three years. Um, I think that part of it isn't just that the, that the Republicans have been so focused on building power. It's that they have felt more comfortable changing the rules of the game to build their power. Right. So when, you know, Mitch McConnell says, we're just going to change this to a simple majority. So we can just, you know, we don't have time to be waiting around and have the Senate change on us while we have this, this, this simple majority, we're going to, going to push everybody through so like you know imagine you're you're in a game right your kids playing you know soccer and then all of a sudden they decide to move the the goalpost closer to where you know where the kicker is like just like just pause stop we're gonna move the belt, like and put it right in front of the kicker like i think all of those things end up um not just uh not not just em- empowering them to build more power um, but really undermining how democracy functions. And I think that that is really the thing that we have to keep our eye on and, and the thing that we have to restore. Um, it's one of the, the first bills that is quite literally, quite literally, HR1 um, that a number of organizations have aligned on across issues, because we know that until we restore how democracy works and functions and put, put, put back the rules of the game so that we can all participate, and make it in more alignment with um, popular opinion, um, then we don't have a chance. And I think that's really what we have to call the question, not necessarily the strategies of of right of, of people who support abortion rights or reproductive rights, but the fact that people have literally stolen, and that yeah. is unacceptable.
1: So Alexis, uh, the president has been very public um, about his support for uh, for. White supremacist groups. Um, He did not condone them when given the opportunity on stage two nights ago at the first presidential debate and racism has been in many ways, the foundation of his uh, of his presidency. Um, Hate crimes have increased. It's emboldened different organizations and groups um, to act violently. Why do you think why do you think people feel so emboldened Um, and what do you think the answer is for all of us. Yeah,
0: what, I, what I can say is the most powerful tool that a president has is the bully pulpit. And when you have a bully in the bully pulpit with extreme views around uh, whether or not he actually believes them, but with extreme views around issues of race, reproductive rights, in my case, um, or our case, um, what you see is the ability to use that bully pulpit to give cover to folks who might be so inclined to do that work. So in, in other words, rhetoric is reality, right? Rhetoric is the, is, um, you know, is, isn't just words in the air, It is actually giving permission, um, in fact, urging and mandates to people who uh, are looking, as you said, for that clear guidance and that clear mandate to act. We saw this during COVID. Uh, You know, the president and the, the Senate have been you know so hell-bent on restricting access to um, uh, sexual and reproductive health care during the pandemic, a number of governors took advantage of sheltering in place to impose extreme executive order bans on access to abortion, like literally not, not even medication abortion, not even two pills like at eight weeks. They would rather say, you will be forced into pregnancy while you're sheltering in place in the middle of a pandemic and lost your job, forcing people to get in their cars and drive 16 hours to neighboring states with their children and their elderly parents in their backseat, right? So not keeping people safe, right? Because they're driving through a pandemic, you know, they're exposing themselves, they're exposing other people. And um, because they felt like it was okay to push a political agenda because they had the cover under the bully pulpit. And what we saw in that debate was very similar. It was, you know, um, we know that racial anxiety drove the 2016 election. It wasn't the economy, economy is on the upswing. It was racial anxiety um, after eight years where people perceived that racial disparity or grievances around issues of race would go away under President Obama. And in fact, that didn't happen because it, it, it's not a person's job. It is an institutional job. Just as like we talked about the kind of the work that we have to do, we actually have to transform our institutions, our, you know, our education systems, our, our, our workplaces, our police departments, our healthcare systems, that is where the work has to be and um, that, so that racial anxiety actually drove that election. It is what has been pushed over over the last four years. And it is what is also driving this election. The only difference though uh, is that reckoning moment. And I honestly, I, I know it is, um, a lot of it is centers around the, the horrific and violent captured film, you know, filmed, Death, murder of George Floyd—that eight minutes and forty-six seconds—but it is the preponderance of violent actions towards um, towards blacks from you know Ahmaud Aubrey to George Floyd, and you know, and subsequently Breonna Taylor, and um, you know, um, like I feel like I can just keep going down the the list of, of folks like. It's seeing them in short order that transforms our brains into, wow, this is this is really still um, a huge challenge. That's why the the protests that we've seen have been the most diverse, multi generational you know, um, multi-class, I mean, you know, kinds of protests that we've ever seen because people across the country are actually leaning into their better selves and and saying, I need my values and my behavior to show up in align." line. And so while we have a bully in the bully pulpit Mm -hmm. who is pushing these agendas around race and reproductive rights, we also have, again, this outside game of folks who are really coming into a different kind of consciousness around that. And that i i that's i have to center hope there because otherwise you know i just it's hard to get up <laughs> in the morning
1: you know we've talked a little bit about kind of the advantage that some governors senators um politicians have really taken uh, when it comes to COVID. And one of the things that's been glaring, um, especially for women, is the increased amount of intimate partner violence, gender-based violence, child abuse. We're now seeing um, more women leaving their jobs. We're seeing more women say they just simply can't continue working uh, under these present conditions. And that, you know, the UN UN Women estimates that that's setting us back over 75 years in terms of gender equality. From from in less than eight months, we've moved back 75 years in terms of when we could when we could potentially be on um, even just equal footing. What what is your view on kind of our hesitancy to talk about as as a country, um, what's happening to women through COVID, and 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 more than just that. Specifically to to violence against women, uh, and and how this has really negated a lot of their agency and power, um, both in the home and out of the home.
0: I, I mean, I I think that as we know with um, with domestic violence, it is it's oftentimes something that people experience in silence, you know, and in, and. In, in private and by themselves, and with these rules to shelter in place to stay healthy, um, it is invited. You know um, some of those worst uh, abuses to happen. Um, we should be talking about it more. I think that our the struggles that we have had around just navigating what it means to be in a pandemic Um, and the ways in which we are all just putting um, one foot in front of the other just to survive, you know, what feels like Groundhog's Day and the ways in which, you know, I question, you know, um, even sometimes how I show up in my own household because I'm so quick to, you know, do the share of caregiving that is aligned with my gender, right? I'm taking plates. I'm doing all the laundry. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, fixing the the Zoom school lunches and the, you know, and then I'm saying, oh, go ask your father about the fifth grade math problem that I can't figure out. <laughs> you know, go brave the, you know, honey, go brave that that you know horrible uh, grocery store down the street and 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 scour and find. Toilet paper for us, right? I'm sending them out to, to hunt and, and gather, and I'm at home tending. And, you know, it is the ways in which we have not broken those schemas in our own brains around how we show up as caregivers. And if you are in a, already in a vulnerable um, space, Um, That is only um, becomes more vulnerable because of the impact of the economy, because of the impact of the, you know, of what's happening in our, um, you know, in our, in our workplaces and in our, um, the stress of being together all the time, you know, the increase in alcohol abuse, all of these things are going to be factors that are going to create more, um, you know, opportunities for, I mean, domestic violence is, is a pandemic inside of a pandemic. Yeah. and i think that that is um you know it's real i mean it's it is um you're right we we do need to be having put, putting more of a frame around around why it's happening and how we can help and support and listen while we are uh, you know literally next door
1: no i i hear you i hear you on the um kind of falling back on what society expects of us to a degree um my husband and i actually had this conversation a few days ago because because i noticed i was like i just naturally do more of the cleaning and the cooking and the and he was like no that's not naturally you you make that choice um and and for whatever reason we haven't talked about it but i'm i'm happy to do it you just you need to take a step back um and and it was interesting to me that he said that because he was like "I, i notice you doing it i like i'll get up to do something and you've already done it and um and you somehow feel like it's your responsibility, we both live here, so I, I can, and it was it was kind of that, because it was easier to blame him than it was to accept that I was kind of walking into that role on my own. Yes, yes, um, I would
0: say he's a keeper.
1: Yes, no, I <laughs> agree, I agree, I agree. So I have a few more questions for you. Um, and the first, I have so many more, I wanna be honest with you, I have so many more questions for you because I could talk mm-hmm. to you forever. Um, You are just kind of a wealth of knowledge and experience. And I think self, um, which is very rare in today's world, but self-awareness and how that's changed your perspective or shaped your perspective and how that can teach us about our perspectives. Um, But my first question for you is, my first of my last is, what does being at the table mean to you?
0: It means that having um, um, a measure of power, right? It means being able to decide. Uh, it means be, being able to participate in the decision-making and the allocation of whatever the bounty is. Um, and there are, I'll be honest, there are many times where I've been at the table or I've been invited at the table, I haven't always felt like, I could participate in the decision-making or that I could um, say no or excuse myself from the table until the table was better set. Um, and I feel like I'm sitting at the table now
1: mm-hmm.
0: in a way um, with those experiences of thinking about how I, how I set my own table and um, how I lead from this standpoint um, in a different
1: way what does it mean to, you know, invite others to the table or set a table where everybody can feel like, you know, they can participate or they can walk away if it's not in service of them? What does that look like? You know, it looks like um,
0: it looks like accountability for me. Right. I do think that is. know and, and again it's a lot of that the framing that i um that i've always used around the work that i did around bias right that sometimes we operate on you know on goodwill like everybody's gonna love this meal it's gonna be so great or just like sheer willpower like you will eat these vegetables because you have to you know as opposed to you know accountability metrics that really help you know whether or not you know it was the meal that you thought everybody wanted or the thing that they absolutely needed to eat, you know, that there are other ways to measure that. And so, you know, I think inviting people in and um, challenging your own perspective is such an opportunity for growth. And and for me, I've, I feel like I'm, I've just stayed a student, you know, as an academic for a long time and um, being a student just you know, keeps me sane. It's actually how I make sense of the crazy around me. I just like, you know, I just be like, Oh wow. Like tell me more about that. That's so interesting. Um, but it also helps me. It may be a little bit of my unhealthy compartmentalization. It helps me kind of disassociate a little bit so that I can process Yeah. and then come back into that discomfort and really, you know, and that's the experience that I want at a table. Um, it's the experience that I want to offer at a table where people can come and they can um, you know, they can, you know, to me, that's part of what what an inclusive table would look like, right? Mm-hmm.
1: So how do you, I mean, you have millions of women, and and I would actually argue hundreds of millions of people who look at you for direction and leadership and support. Um, and honestly, just to ensure that they're being seen and heard. And that's a lot to have on someone's shoulders, especially this year. So how do you Cope with that. Like, how do you, how do you manage that, or do you?
0: You know, I I just believe that service is power, and I think that this and the the all all of the work that I've um, that I've ever done has been grounded in that notion. And that whatever platform or opportunity I had to bring a different voice into the conversation and center them, um, to me, that makes me feel more comfortable. It doesn't make me feel comfortable to think that people are looking at me, um, it, but me more as a vessel, a vehicle. Um, of of naming that, I I fully recognize the um the the various opportunities and privileges I've been afforded over the many years um, of of repeated investment, and I know why that is. You know why why I get to sit at a table. Um, so I I think it's my job, and I watched my mom do this over and over again. She started out as like a secretary at AT T Bell Labs in the back in the day, and worked her way up to vice president. But she literally was like the person who just grabbed the person next to her, and they, she just kept, they kept climbing together because she believed in critical mass, and she believed that a critical mass um, was going to advance, and that it was, that no one wanted to be lonely at the table, Um, and I've seen that dynamic shift inside of um, Planned Parenthood. I've seen having that critical mass of um, of folks inside of the ecosystems that I operate, like and how it's changed our conversations, how it's pushed different agendas that wouldn't necessarily be um, at the center or the forefront. I've seen how it's pushed policy demands, and I think it's going to be the key thing that actually pushes how we drive power. And so, you know, the the um, so those millions of of of, of voices you know, to me are a critical mass of change pushing forward. And that to me is, um, that's just the theory of change that I operate under.
1: That's such a powerful lesson to have as a child though. Like that's such a powerful thing to see in action. Um, Because because we all hear about it as we've grown older and and we start kind of like looking more into mentorship and into community and into, okay, how do we amplify each other? But to know that intrinsically from such a young age, because you've seen it firsthand is incredibly powerful. So props to your mom. And my last question for you. Is if you were to bring any kind of one idea or thought, it can be a book, it can be a person, it can be um, a quote, it can be anything to this community, to this table. What would it be?
0: So the the quote that I've been meditating on um, this last pandemic time, which is probably like ten years now, is um, uh, a poem by Alice Walker. Um, Hope is a woman who has lost her fear. And I, I, um, I've just been sitting on what it means to be fully unapologetic, um, and fully free in a, in a way that, um, I've never asked myself to be. Right. And then, and we talk a lot about in our work, freedom and justice and all of these ways. Um, I don't think we actually, when I say like, I feel free, I'm really tapping into something that uh, I didn't know was possible. And that poem gave me some of that thinking and um, I would invite others at the table to meditate on it. with me.
1: Incredible. I like, I like that poem a lot. Yeah. So, Alexis, in this kind of hypercritical time, how can we help you? Prayer.
0: (laughs) I think now is the time for engagement. I don't think that we get to walk through this time um, with blinders on or passively. Um, we, we are at such an existential crisis across our health, across our economy, across our rights, across our climate, our earth. And, um, and there are a lot of efforts around um, disinformation and misinformation and we have to cut through that noise together and we have to figure out who we trust in those conversations and um, and really take action together. And I think that is, um, you know, uh, taking those actions boldly, taking them with Planned Parenthood, you know, with other organizations that, that support the work that you find passionate about, but but it's now is the time to, to engage and engage fully because I don't think we get another shot.
1: Thank you so much. I wholeheartedly agree. I think um, if you're not engaging now, I, I, I don't know when. Um, and and there's got to be, we need all hands on deck for sure. Uh, so where can we find you, Alexis? Where can this community reach out to you? How can they show support? Um, where can they where can they see your incredible work? Well, you can go to PlannedParenthood.org uh,
0: and um, find all that you need to know about Planned Parenthood health centers. You can go to, uh, you can find me at, at Alexis McGill on Twitter uh, and Instagram where I, you know, We'll be talking about things and ways to get engaged.
1: Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Again, everybody, you can go to plantparenthood.org to learn more about the incredible work that Planned Parenthood is doing. Um, and you can go to Alexis McGill at, on Twitter and Instagram to learn more about Alexis's work and to really see what she's amplifying and, and, and the ways in which they're creating opportunities for engagement um, over the next few weeks, months, and years. Thank you so much, Alexis. Um, and thank you for all the incredible work you do.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me at your table.
1: Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change and be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Rabbit. Thank you for joining us.